0: Hi, everyone. This is Steve Havey. I'm your guest host tonight for this special episode of That Weems Guy. Tonight, we have a very special guest. It's Lee Weems himself. Lee, tell everybody about yourself.
1: Well, hello. I am That Weems Guy. Uh, and thank you to the magnificent Steve for, for stepping in to play the part of Ed McMahon tonight. And uh, I guess we should do the Tonight Show theme. And everybody, Here's over the, everybody over the age of 40 will know what we're talking about. Um, but uh, I'm Lee Weems. I'm normally the host of, of this show uh, but Steve is going to be the guest host tonight and interview me with some questions that he came up with And some that uh, uh, listeners of the show submitted to him And the reason we're doing it this way is because I'm a guest that I knew I could track down to get booked for this week And <laughs> we had a two-night window on which to get a show done this week And uh, this worked out very well and um steve has a very important function in the first person safety organization actually has two very important functions number one is he's the director of engineering and number two is he is my get back coach and uh if you don't know what a get back coach is that's the guy that's responsible for pulling the head coach off the football field before he gets a 15 yard penalty for for messing up and steve's probably about to tell me to turn it back over to him so
0: steve thanks lee (laughs) um we got, I put out the call last night for questions on the That Weems Guy Facebook page. And if you're not already following That Weems Guy Facebook page, you should be. We got some really good questions. They were buried buried within a bunch of sarcastic questions. One of the sarcastic questions I will not ask Lee tonight is whether or not Haagen-Dazs is better than Bluebell ice cream. If I ask Lee that question, I will be immediately fired from my job as get back coach and director of engineering because I've been around Lee long enough to know that there is no question about what is the best ice cream in the world and it is Brahms but it did trigger a thought in my mind how did Lee develop this original affection for ice cream so Lee what started you down the ice cream trail
1: well I grew up in a a very extended family on the same and on the same property as my grandmother who lived in the house next door to us and on Sundays we went to either my grandmother's house or one of my great aunts' houses for lunch there was i had two great aunts living uh, within a couple of miles of us and I, every sunday after church we were at one of their their houses uh, during the summertime when it, we would be at my grandmother's house and she would cook she would fry chicken in a pressure cooker and she put it out on the carport so it wouldn't heat up the house and she would also put an ice cream churn out there next to the pressure cooker so we got expertly grandmother fried fried chicken and expert grandmother homemade ice cream. And uh, you always knew the ice cream was done when the churn stopped because that's when it was frozen. So I guess that would be the first, you know, exposure to ice cream being a big special thing. Um, The Brahms thing comes in when I was in second grade, we moved to Oklahoma for a year and Brahms is is an uh, Oklahoma-based ice cream chain for those that aren't familiar. It's got a market and they serve food and everything there as well and on sunday nights my father would take us to brahms and so it's something that i can only get it's, it's one of the childhood memories and uh, that i attach you know special meaning to and it's something i can only get when i'm in that part of the country there are in texas there are a couple of them in kansas some of them in missouri and there are two in arkansas i do believe um
0: and so, so you like ice cream and you like Brahms,
1: yeah, yeah and that's the now the the funny thing is is that when i graduated from high school i went to work for an ice cream company i worked in a warehouse and that's where i started down the road to being the uh the portly gentleman that i am now i was rather skinny when i went to work there and on my first day we we worked in a warehouse and the ice cream was shipped in from the factory on big pallets and we put it in the warehouse and then we loaded it onto the delivery trucks that went out and ran the routes and delivered it and so i walk in and say hey this is lee he's the new guy i jumped right in we're loading a truck the truck pulls out of the the loading dock and a pint of strawberry had fallen down into the loading dock and i jumped down there and grabbed it and said what do we do with this and they say get a spoon <laughs> and uh that's what started me towards the road of portliness.
0: now was that a bluebell factory
1: no that was a metagold ice cream uh okay. factory which at the time metagold had been bought out by borden and it, it's just gone defunct now uh, well, off- with you there, <laughs> no, no, no. After left that- <laughs> how much
0: ice cream really fell off the truck
1: <laughs> versus got pushed? Uh, my rule was I never would break open a package to get something. There was enough stuff that got broken open and uh, all the handling processes. Um, it actually started out as a, a creamery in South Georgia, and then grew and got bought and sold several times. and And Borden Milk Company was the last mm-hmm. conglomerate to own it, and then all of that went under. Okay. Um,
0: Well, good. That's a good, that's a good answer on ice cream. Mm -hmm. Let's move on along. Uh All right. Let's talk about your recent surgery. We had a good question. Uh, Both Michael and Brian had questions about your recent hand surgery Mm -hmm. and how it related to how you carried. So I I broke it into three, four questions. Okay. And you can expound after I'm done with my three or four questions. (laughs) Um. What was the, what was the total time for your recovery? Assuming you're, are you, are you fully recovered now? And how long ago was the surgery?
1: Surgery was seven weeks ago yesterday. And no, I am not fully recovered.
0: Okay. Would you say you, but you back to carrying on strong side. Yes. Uh, yeah. Dominant side. And yeah. what would you say you are right now? 80%, 90%, 74.3. Uh, 65%. Okay. So 65% dominant hand is better than whatever you had on your non-dominant hand.
1: Yeah. And the big reason for that is, is I did go do some live fire testing several times along the way. Um, And when I got to where I could grip the gun and press the trigger and make the shot without reacting to the pain enough that I pulled the shot off of, of target, I went back to the right hand, not because of skill diminishment for being in the support hand, but the fact that if I got the go signal, remembering intellectually that the pistol was on the left hand side instead of going for it where it has been for 23 years, um, I went back to to strong side because I, I can handle it for, you know, the few rounds that an actual encounter would take. I, I I'm probably still a long ways off for being able to do, you know, any kind of high round count class. So
0: seven weeks after this, this particular surgery, you could instinctively draw and deliver those first two or three shots probably with yeah. more than 65% of capacity. It's yeah. Because um, you wouldn't, you, you're instinctively would get the shots off and then deal with the pain later. Right. Yeah,
1: I went recently and fired 23 live rounds because 23 was all I could stand. Um, <laughs> and I immediately started getting some swelling and some pain in the hand, but I was okay. I was able to fire all of those shots. Um, okay. The biggest issue with it was the swelling in the hand stretched the skin so tight that I had trouble reaching for the trigger and being able to manipulate the finger press the trigger Mm -hmm. and the other part with that but uh, probably equal importance is the incision uh was right in the crease of the hand and if i gripped a pistol grip it pressed right on that incision was extremely
0: painful okay so let's go back to left hand only because or non-dominant hand for all of you that are wrong handed the because different people have different levels of surgery. Mm-hmm. And somebody, somebody might have their hand amputated even. So when you went to left-hand only, you did quite a bit of shooting. You went and took a class, yeah. a red dot class, as I recall, Yep. or a pistol-mounted optic because mm-hmm. now they're red and green and they're not just dots, <laughs> they're circles, et cetera. Right. But you went to a pistol-mounted optic class and you shot that left-handed. Did you or non-dominant hand, how much of that was non-dominant hand only versus supported non-dominant hand versus non-dominant, but freestyle?
1: Most of it, I tried to shoot freestyle, uh, just so I would get a true, try to get a mirror image, uh, point of view. What I found was, is that obviously my dominant hand is stronger than my non-dominant. And I was tending to pull the gun off target to the right. And so I ended up going to like a crazy, just a teacup type of grip just to help support the pistol uh, rather than actually gripping the pistol with with the dominant hand. Uh, I've done a lot of work support hand only. Yeah, I'm a graduate of the Rogers Shooting School in which there's extensive support hand only. I've done done the gypstixing out of level three class, which is basically a rogers S class. As you know, I teach a class that is all... We do a lot of stuff support hand only. Right. And so I've done a lot of work with the gun and the support hand, but it all started off on the right hand side. and was all predicated on right hand injury. I've got to get the gun out with the left mm-hmm. hand. Um, it's been it was different having the gun on the left hand side and starting with it as just a normal would be a regular draw.
0: Did um, you do some work with it? prior to your surgery did you start doing some left-handed stuff how about how many rounds or repetitions
1: i didn't go fire any live rounds that way because i knew i could trust the press the trigger and be okay i did do some work trying to habituate my brain to the the pistol being on that side and i can't put a number on how many repetitions it was just something i would do every so often just to uh to try to start getting the synapses is okay. That's where the the gun's going to be. And then, you know, once I was really carrying on that, I did some, you know, some concentrated dry work, but I would probably, you know, five, 10 times each morning before I left, draw the gun uh, from the holster uh, as a left-handed initiated draw just to try to remind my brain, Hey, that's where the gun is. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other thing was, is I, I, most of the audience knows I'm a deputy sheriff. I did work plain clothes for the first several weeks and was carrying concealed. So hopefully I wouldn't like walk up on something in a convenience store or, or something like that and be confronted with the situation um, because somebody saw, hey, here's the cop. Um, so I would have had the added thing of having to clear the cover garment and get to the left hand, which I had never done any left-handed concealment work prior to the surgery. All of my left hand, well, yeah, I had in no. classes, yeah, and demonstrating from the class. But
0: would you have been allowed to carry, uh, yeah. non dominant side in uniform?
1: Yeah, I would have
0: department policy.
1: Yeah, I, I would have been because, well, one, my job now is I'm
0: behind the wire, yeah. I'll but it, yeah. let me rephrase my question, yeah. yeah. If you were a patrol deputy and you had mm-hmm. this surgery, you wouldn't be out on patrol would you um, allowed out on patrol i
1: probably could have been because i could have gone and shot a passing score from the from the non-dominant side and mm-hmm. the, guy, the man that is currently our sheriff at one point in time had shoulder surgery and so as to avoid going on a, a light duty thing went and shot a qualifying score left-handed so i think i probably could have gotten away with it because he's done that <laughs> so, the advantages um, of a
0: yeah. non-big city yeah office yes.
1: yeah and so it's uh, i think i would have been fine um and that was i had a discussion with my doctor about it prior to the surgery was like look how long am i going to be out this is my job and everything and he basically said for the first week you no know, so i stayed off uh, out of work for the first week, and then I went back playing clothes, and it's just uh, the biggest thing would have been the pain, not necessarily the function.
0: Right. Uh, My question should... was more from a yeah, uh, de- from a uh, an office. Yeah. I didn't want to say department right. from an office policy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Would they allow that?
1: Well, so, I or... I never got anything in writing from a doctor that said I was not capable of working duty. If that had been the case, then I would have had to have gone back and gotten released from the doctor to go back mm-hmm. to full duty and that happens from time to time when people are actually they have an injury that keeps them from working and their doctor mm-hmm. writes up this person cannot perform their normal duties then they have to get their doctor to release them to come back to duties uh, my doctor basically said it was up to me and so it never went into a formal um yeah you know,
0: understood um, so was there anything you took away from that experience that's going to change anything about your curriculum or add to your curriculum, anything you found there that's going to change how you teach or what you teach?
1: Um, I don't know necessarily it's going to change how I teach, but that you know that what is now called pistol craft four, it used to be critical pistol skills all was predicated on the thought of your strong hand has been injured, so you're having to get the gun from your dominant side with your non-dominant hand. Um, it was different starting with the gun on the non-dominant side. And that may be something that I talk with with students about. It's like, look, when you do some of this work, you may want to do some of that. So you're not having to learn it on the fly. Uh, Now, I wanted to be very clear that I do think that those are, you know, what we call 1% skills. That's only something that you do when you've got a pretty good grasp on everything else. And the only time I ever practiced those skills is when I teach the class. That is my mm-hmm. practice for this. Um, it's not something I spend a lot of range work on because I can't point to a single private citizen incident which has happened. I can point to law enforcement, uniform duty situations and where it has happened. Where the Well, that's what added. triggered
0: the class, right? right. That, that incident yeah. with the Quinnette uh, deputies is what triggered your... Uh, I, I, Quintet, it was, I don't know if that um, was a department or an office, but...
1: Actually, it was a Livonia Police Department. Oh, okay. Uh, I think it's Livonia, Livonia or Franklin. So the same, one exit up from where Red Hill range is, right. that city PD. And um, uh, that incident's on video. And of course, I, well, I knew all the stuff. I had gone to Rogers before this and and it's, and it's all stuff taught. But, you know, when I really and truly developed the curriculum is I had some of our staff shoot support hand only in a class. And one of the deputies who at the time was like a 14 year veteran. So that's the first time I've ever shot with my left hand. And that was when the <laughs> light bulb went off from my head. So you've never drawn the pistol.
0: How do I draw my pistol with just yeah. my left hand?
1: Yeah. And so I developed the curriculum and we started doing it, you know, through the sheriff's office, you know, for the uniform personnel. And then I, when I first started my business, um, I didn't want to compete. With everybody out there, everybody else that was out there doing this stuff, I thought I would do niche things to kind of make me stand apart. And this was a class that nobody else was teaching. And it was actually the first open enrollment class that I offered. Um what I quickly found is that doesn't work really well for the business. And you need to be teaching the other classes. And um One of the learning processes along the way that may go to one of the other questions is I will never do that class again for people that have not gone through the other classes with me. And that's why it's now pistol craft four. And you will have gone through one, two, and three with first person safety Mm -hmm. before you go to four, because I've had a couple of uh, really bad experiences, nothing like anybody got injured or hurt or anything well, like you stopped that. it you halted yeah. the
0: class before that could happen yeah and you could tell you could tell where not to go
1: <laughs> right and um so i'm not going to take anyone's word for it on their skills anymore i'm going to have seen it in class on the line and um uh, we're going to have a basis of understanding before we go into that material
0: we had we had a uh, of course i took the first I I was your student the first time you taught that class. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure it was the first time you taught it. And that was, we were very fortunate that we had people in there Mm -hmm. that had the requisite skills and they they had, they had the ability to not do stupid things with their guns.
1: That was not the first class. That was actually a couple of years Mm -hmm. in the one that that you you and and, and Doug attended. Uh, The very first one that I taught, this is one of those learning experiences is i thought that pistol in three magazines was self-explanatory that this was semi-automatic pistol <laughs> and i had a i'm getting out of the truck to set up and one of the students comes walking up and said hey my gun doesn't take magazines like, so what does your gun take and it's like oh it's the j frame that i shot in the other class and she, i said have you replaced the front sight because the front sight fell off of the gun from in the other class she said, oh no and so here here the student was in a class that is all about sport hand only draws clearing malfunctions and stuff with a semi-automatic pistol and they've got a five-shot j-frame revolver and so we adapted and, and for some of the stuff we let her borrow a semi-automatic pistol uh to work on but uh that's why I've, I'm sort of very clearly spelling it out in the class description
0: after mm-hmm. that.
1: And even though I had prerequisites in the class description that I thought were ironclad, uh, no.
0: No, they don't. They no. don't. It, it's amazing to people that mm-hmm. ignore the prere- prerequisites. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then there are those that complain when you require that they take your level one class before you take your level two class right well i've taken a level four class from so and so Mm -hmm. well that's nice yeah send me a video i don't have (laughs) one okay you're taking my class right so all right well let's move on to another question uh brian put this one in uh and i know that you addressed it on the uh weems guy at weems guy facebook page so for those of you when lee mentioned some links here that's where you can go find them Mm -hmm. but uh best resources for learning pre-assault indicators
1: probably the best readily available to the masses resource is if you go to the john murphy's fpf training youtube channel um he has a playlist that is required watching for his concealed carry, street tactics, whatever the name of it is, uh, class. And in one of those videos is pre-assault indicators. And that's a good video. We actually use it for training in the sheriff's office. When I a lot of times when I teach use of force, I'll show that uh, video as well or have people watch it outside of class um, because it does play into the articulation of, I recognize what this looks like and what it means mm-hmm. and so john's john's video is probably the easily you know most easily available access to everybody uh resources to everyone out there uh and it's well done and so i we mean if it's know.
0: well done enough for a sheriff's office to use it uh-huh. then as tom gibbons would say we call uh-huh. that a clue yeah so probably be good for you to watch and it's available uh-huh. for anybody even if they're uh-huh. not signed up for the class to go watch that video is that correct yeah.
1: Yeah, and then, you know, last not this calendar year, but last calendar year, uh, I did the use of force training for all of the district attorney's office investigators, and they watched that video, so now we've got that into the, this is what the DA's office investigators have seen, so I know they'll have that information when it comes to evaluating Mm -hmm. use of force. Um, John's class uh the advanced skills and tactics class is very well done i think it's one of the top three traveling road shows out there um unfortunately john is trying to sell people what they need instead of what they want and so it doesn't fill up as some of the as well as some of the high round count uh entertainment classes uh very well done very well done class and if it's coming to you or you need to go if it's not coming anywhere near you which is, travels all over the United States because he lives in a motor doing this, uh, make the effort to go meet him somewhere. It is an outstanding class. Uh, after John's class, um, Chuck Haggard of, um, I think agile training mm-hmm. is his, his business. Chuck does a lot of work on that. And Chuck does it in parallel to his, uh, OC spray classes. So you could actually go somewhere and not be a live fire range class. You can get it in conjunction with using OC and other less lethal um, uh, items that you could take someone to that's not going to go to a shooting class.
0: That's right. There's lots of people out there that choose not to carry guns, and we all know some of those people. And a Chuck Haggard class is really good for, for getting that kind of yeah. And it may not necessarily
1: be that people don't choose to carry guns. It may be that they work in an environment, in which they just can't have. them. You know, if you're a college professor or a school teacher, you, right. you might know you might be, legally, yeah, it might be legally constrained, or you may have a job that has a company policy and no firearms on the property. Well, guess what? Having a roof over your head and having food in your refrigerator is survival. And you got to mm-hmm. have a job to do that. Um you, know, you can say, you know, pull all your stuff out and put it on your nightstand and take a picture of it all you want to, but, uh, you know, you still got to have a job. You still got to have the mas- basic means of survival. And so even if there's, you know, again, people that aren't anti-carrying the gun,
0: there's still ways to defend yourself and,
1: you know, take anybody to that class.
0: Right. Um, I, I, before I Before I forget and before... I get a lot of nasty comments. Mm -hmm. I want to, I want to say that, you know, it's not just people that don't carry a gun that should get OC training. It's people that carry a gun. I mean, one of the phrases that Chuck uses is something between a harsh word and a gun. And, you know, having OC on you is something, if you carry a gun, you should have OC on you. That's, that's my opinion. Uh, It's just my opinion, but Uh, for those of you that i know there's many of you out there that subscribe to that and i don't want you to think that we're advocating chuck's training only for people that don't carry a gun because that's not what i'm suggesting at all
1: right um once you know probably the the other big resource out there would be the what we call the shivworks collective in the in the firearm training business and that's uh craig douglas cecil birch and those guys um no that's going to be a lot more physically demanding mm-hmm. type classes uh John, yeah, yeah. John, john's class and chuck's class you can take anybody to uh shivworks class you can't take just anybody to um, Shiv
0: works class you want to you want to uh, you you don't want to mind getting physical right and you know and it does yeah. get physical and that's yeah. I mean, the the greatest thing I took away from that class was learning that I need to learn all those pre-assault indicators and everything else so I can avoid getting in that situation because there's a whole lot of people out there that can bend me in half.
1: Yep. The biggest thing to learn is how to
0: recognize
1: it, the situation before it develops or as it's developing so that you can take appropriate avoidance tools, avoidance options, to try to keep from being in that entangled fight or having to go to your OC or having to go to your firearm, uh, using deadly, using force is a last resort using deadly force is an extreme last resort.
0: Yes, indeed. And it brings up a point. I was thinking about this, uh, when you use Tim Chandler's line, uh, that, uh, pistol mounted optics are best at what we do least with a pistol. hmm Um, shooting the gun is the least percentage of the time that we use it. We're not going to use the gun that often, right? but we're going to use all those other skills a lot more often out in the real world. Mm -hmm. We practice the gun a whole lot. And it's a lot of fun to your point about John's John's teaching people what they need to know. So it's not as popular or to use uh, John Murphy to use John Hearn's term. He provides vegetables along with the meat and potatoes. Yeah, the people love the meat and potato, meat and the vegetables, and eh, not as much. But yeah. those are really the skills you need because you're just going to use them a lot more often. And to your point, you avoid the conflict and you're so far ahead of the game. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, the three biggest takeaways you have. Uh, one takeaway each from Tom Gibbons, Dave Spaulding and Larry Mudgett. All
1: right. I'll start with Larry Mudgett first and that I don't have the personal relationship with him that I do with Tom and Dave. Uh, my exposure to Larry Mudgett would be only the one class that I went and took, uh, along with all that. And there's an episode, uh, or actually two episodes where we were going in depth on that class. Um, the biggest takeaway I got from him was a methodology for translating what I knew in my head to students effectively. Uh, Cause I had been trying to, you know, come up with a way of teaching some of that stuff. And you had been through the early trigger management classes, which that's kind of what we were doing. And then I went and took his class and went, ah, okay. That's the missing link and what I'm trying to do here. And um, it really transformed the trigger management and a lot of the other stuff that I teach. Um, so from him, I could say just, just taking away that methodology um, triggers so many other things. From Tom and Dave, um, I joked with somebody one day, I've got two daddies and it's Tom and Dave. Um so much more so so much more than just on the range stuff uh so many philosophical discussions uh, with those two guys um i probably run a class more like tom i probably run a gun more like dave as far okay. as like in personal skills um the i, I say the biggest thing from range masters doctrine and material is getting people's minds wired right and getting people to understand that it's not a one in a million chance it's a chance every time you walk out the door and i think that's why the range master's student base has been so successful when they've actually been put to the test you know as tom says in class you have permission to defend yourself and I think trying to import that, um, is probably my biggest takeaway from Tom. I, the mechanics of running the gun, I run more like Dave than I do Tom. And that's not saying that Tom's way of doing things is not correct or not as well. It's just,
0: I just, as, you <laughs> just as, you, yeah. as you and Justin Dial were talking about, yeah, yeah. uh, two episodes ago, Yeah, right? there are yeah. different ways to do things yeah. and um and the yeah. the longer you're around this yeah the more you realize that yeah. you know there isn't just one way to do something
1: right if you trace the origins of the path of where i learned to shoot and came up they more similarly mirror dave's than they do toms um and but they're both they, they both all go back to cooper and the modern technique mm-hmm. um but you know, Dave went through Mid South. He's gone for some of the other stuff. The, the people who taught me how to shoot through the Georgia Public Safety Training Center were all Mid South guys, Rogers guys, that had a bigger influence on my firearms training than um, true Gunsight Weaverish. Uh, and Weaver is not what everybody thinks Weaver is. Um, methodology mine was more the East Coast version instead of the West Coast version. Whereas Tom went a lot to Gunsight, and that was very formative. Uh, for him, uh, I'm very close with each of them personally, uh, now, I've spent many nights at Tom's house, I have not, you know, gone gone up and bunked in at Dave's play, hey Dave, I'm here for the night, you know, I mean, uh, but uh, very deep friendship, I, I appreciate the time that both of them have taken, uh, and personal interest, both of those guys have taken uh, to help develop me, um, and Yeah, all the time the the philosophical conversations it's always a great day when I get to have a phone call with both of them uh, individually and um, you know it's just being able to bounce stuff off of those guys like hey this this is a situation that I'm dealing with whatever you know bounce it off of them and get their feedback and that translates immediately out to students in the field as well
0: Okay. and
1: um Tom early on took a lot of interest in developing my knowledge base as an instructor It like gave me reading assignments and and the like and um yeah i I can't thank the two of those guys enough,
0: yep, I always. Like to say, I was fortunate that I fell in with the right group.
1: Right. You know, and I guess, I guess one thing I say, a commonality of both of those guys is they bowl it down to the simplest of things. And that has really shaped, especially over the past year that I've been a year and a half, two years since I've been full time training bowl away all the nuance bowl away all the 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 little bitty things oh that we if you do this one little thing you know everything what matters is getting the gum between you and the bad guy and pressing the trigger without misaligning the gun
0: Mm -hmm. that's what matters so let's talk about another aspect of training that uh you and um I think Eric talked about, mm-hmm. and I know other guests have talked about it. The difference between when we're all on a line firing at a single target. And when we're having to deal with outside the square range, uh-huh. you know, the food court's got two bad guys and 67 people that don't need to be shot. Right. Uh, one of my, As you know, I run a defensive pistol match, and Uh it's sort of like IDPA, but there's some things I don't pay attention to. Like in IDPA, you can only have so many no-shoots. Yeah. The ratio of no-shoots can only be half or a fourth of what the shoots are. Well, I don't pay any attention to that. I'll put up a whole bunch of no-shoots and Uh make you figure out how to weave your way between. You've done that in class, and it's one of the places I got the idea, as well as putting out having no-shoots behind and in front of shoots. And I know Murphy has some of this in his class, even though I haven't attended the class. I, mm-hmm. I picked up a perception of that. I'm, I hope to get to his class in February. And yes, you should go train with John Murphy, audience. And if mm-hmm. you haven't, it's just, it. I mean, if there was, if you can only take one class as a civilian self defender, that's the class that I would recommend that you go take. That's mm-hmm. me talking. That's not Lee. That's me. I'll look at um, that. So there you go. Um, but it's also difficult to run a lot of students through those kind of scenarios in a class. Oh. And then they've got that downtime. You know, we, we've done it a couple of times. You've set up the the blue Falcon drill where half the class sets up a scenario that involves multiple targets, including no shoots. And it's blind for the other half of the class and then they have oh. to run through it, but it chews up a lot of time. And it's, it's not as much fun as oh. sitting up there burning down the targets. Oh. Why isn't there more of that out there in the training community, or is it out there and I'm just not aware of it?
1: Um, One, it's harder. It's more difficult on the instructor. Um, Number two is the instructor's got to have the knowledge base to to do stuff like that. Um, And I'm not trying to, but there is a place for developing technical skill and focus only on technical skill and the students have to have achieved a certain level of it Uh, but we have to teach our students to function in a real environment and so we need to be putting them in situations in which they have to process information and think with the gun in their hand or the gun on their holster you know actually think and process information um otherwise we're just setting them up for it's only a Draw your pistol and burn down the two dimensional stationary target. Um, And the biggest thing is, is, well, logistically, it's hard because you got to have a range in which you can do it. Uh, I I have not taught that on an indoor range just because it's hard to set it up on an indoor range. There are some that where it would work. Um, And even on some outdoor ranges. It's hard because the way they're constructed, you may have targets that are behind a, a, you know, a wooden barrier or something like that, a bullet trap barrier where you can't set up things that people have people intentionally putting shots into there. Right. So logistics become a big issue. Uh, number two is the knowledge base of the instructor, I think is, is uh, uh, whether, and when I say knowledge base is well, I I can't go into that without making people mad, so I'm not going to worry about making people mad, is the understanding of the problem and that it's not all metric-based. It's information and Mm processing-based. And um, uh, initially, you do get into that whole situation of it's not as fun. And most of us that are out there teaching this, while there's a passion involved, it's also a business. Um, the key thing that the way we do it is we try to keep the students engaged. And I say, well, cause you're a part of that, uh, you know, keep the students engaged. Uh, and that's why we do the half right. of the class but and then that the half of the class that set up the problem are also judges in at everything for when they're watching the students. So you only get a little bit of actual individual student downtime. And that also creates some social time for the students, while they're sitting up there waiting for their ch- chance to go um and doing it that way was actually a suggestion from a student. So i guess one of the biggest takeaways that i've gotten for i know that gets to another question was uh we used to do it where every individual student got in it got the wrong course of fire and then a student that was in the class said, hey why don't you divide the class in half and do it so we tried it the next time and it worked great um, I've had students a couple of students say, "Hey, I think it'd be better if you just like diagrammed out and set up the course of thing just all ran through it. But on the whole, <laughs> I've, had stu- I've had students say, actually being involved in setting up the problem helped them process the information and like look at the angles as they're setting it up and think about the shooting problems as they mm-hmm. were setting up the courses of fire. And they said they took as much away from that as the actual running through the drill and then watch and then once they get to watch the other students because there's this whole thing about you watch somebody else doing something you learn as they do that as well
0: yes you do yes you do any other what other takeaways from your students over the years things that you know um terms are not universal
1: and so we need to make sure that we have an understanding with the student what the term means to us is the same thing that they mean to the student.
0: you have a specific example?
1: Um, not so much as the terms. Well, I guess so. Uh, the whole front sight focus thing. Uh, years ago, I taught an intro class for some pre-service Academy cadets and, you know, getting them ready to go to the police Academy. And there was one female officer that I know what she was told in the classroom because I taught the classroom block. I know what the slide says. And it was talking about focus on the front site. And it had a site picture, a picture of a site picture up showing the front site centered up in the rear site. And I know we discussed that and everything. Um, Got on the range for the live fire stuff because it was like a three-day class that we taught for all the pre-service academy cadets. And a horrible, horrible performance. Like the best scores that I could get out of her, um high thirties on a qual course. And at the time, I was a corporal or a sergeant, and I, I called my lieutenant, who was like the lead firearms guy. like Hey, man, so and so just just not going to make it. Uh, it. It's it's whatever, and. I was still really fairly new in my, my as my instructor during. He says, "Well, you're not a miracle worker. All you can do is give them the information." And I said, "I'll tell you what. I'm going to give one more try with and see if we can straighten this out." And I had the ubiquitous cop spiral little memo notebook that we all kept in our pockets and everything. And I pulled it out. And I was standing at the range with her, and we had we're gathered around a table. And I pulled out the notepad, flipped through to an empty page, and I pulled out my pen and I drew. A sight picture with the front side and the rear side, and the target I was going to explain it to her again. And I see this slight sudden look of realization on her face. She goes, Oh, we're supposed to look through the rear side at the front side. Uh, yeah. Well, what had she been hearing constantly? Focus on the front side. Well, wherever the front sight was, there was no relationship between the front sight and the rear sight. When she would put the gun up on the target, wherever the front sight was, if it was covering part of the target, she pressed the trigger. I was like, quickly, grab your magazines. Let's go back down to the seven-yard line right now. Draw and shoot whatever. She was right in the center mass. Yes, you look through the rear sight at the front sight. And so that became a teaching point for me to make sure that the students understand that um i have not personally experienced this one but i think it was daryl bulky that uh talked about how i had a student that they thought the rear sight was the front sight because it was the front
0: as they one closest it, to them it was the one yeah. closest
1: to them it was the front site um so that's where we i think you gotta you and the student have to meet at the same terminology you got to make sure they understand and that that becomes a all right this is what i'm telling you what are you hearing
0: me say because there's yeah. Yeah. Because 50% of them can get it yeah, or 98% right. of them can get it, but right. some of them may not. And I think right. we have a tendency to, and, and, you know, a lot of the classes, I would say maybe 80% of the classes maybe greater than 80% of the classes are attended by 20% of the shooters. Yep. The enthusiasts are going from class to class to class and that's great. That's great. There's a lot of money there and it's, You know, if you had to rely on, on beginner students, trainers couldn't make a living. I don't think because it just, um, but you start to assume a certain level of proficiency in your class, they all show up with all the kit and the gear and they're put together and they can do things and you don't have to explain terms to them. And then there's those times where you, you you know, I I remember the one time when you learn we learned to be specific in the command. No, I don't want you to give me 10 shots. I want you to give me one shot. 10, <laughs> 10 times.
1: Time. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I was like, bam, 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 bam. Stop.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, learning specific language that cuts out misunderstandings is, is a big one. Um, and then define the term outright. Tell the student I'm using this term. And this is what it means mm-hmm. as part of your teaching instead of just throwing out a term expecting your student to know what it means.
0: right?
1: And yeah, that's a big, because our job is to meet the student where they are. And, and that, that's probably the biggest takeaway that if, we, and, and, you know, walking from the law enforcement teaching world to teaching in the private citizen teaching world is just, you know, we, we've covered this in several past episodes, you know, just the, with the cops, I know they're going to show up with serviceable gear. Mm-hmm. They're all going to be pretty much with a quality pistol. I understand. I don't have to worry about all that kind of stuff with private citizens. You don't ever know what you're going to get show up on the line. Um, and then things are that are just understood. Yeah, you know, like you shouldn't walk off the line in the middle of a drill. And that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And so having to learn how to function in those. Two environments, and, and yeah, I think I've actually got my function better in the private citizen world than, than the
0: cop world. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what else do we want to talk about? All right, the zombie apocalypse comes along. You have, you can only have one pistol, You can have one and only one shotgun and one and only one rifle. Which pistol, which shotgun, which rifle and why? And you can have, you can make two, the two most, the two first mods you would make to each of them, if any.
1: All right. Well, pistol would be Glock 19. Uh, Mm -hmm. Just simply due to prevalence and the amount of time that I I have on that platform although I prefer the CZ P10C through your guidance um, I know there's not as many CZ P10C magazines laying around the world as there are Glock 19 and Glock 17 mags and Mm -hmm. parts and stuff that I could keep the Glock running Um, I would be fine with the perfectly stocked gun as long as it had something like a decent quality set of sights on it Um, not the dovetail protectors that come from the factory this. Right. Um if I could have since you said modifications, um I, I'd be perfectly fine with stock. Now I grip that 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 grip tape or something like that to give me more traction and stuff when I would like to have that with a pistol. Um I carry basically a stock Glock 19 on a daily basis. Um shotgun an old Remington 870P uh, with rifle sights on the barrel that have been replaced with the Trichicon sights. And I would prefer to have the Magpul furniture on it and uh, Vancom Big Dome Safety.
0: Okay. Um,
1: that would be anything. Now, the rifle is probably the most difficult to choose from Um, because naturally my love goes to lever gun Uh, but if I'm looking at a situation long term lever guns are actually kind of fragile and I'm going to go with a Ruger American Ranch in 556 that operates off of AR-15 magazines And it's going to be topped with something like a a very high-end one-to-eight scope. And it's going to have the compact stock on it from from Ruger.
0: Now, for those that don't know, what kind of action is a Ruger American Ranch? That's a bolt action.
1: Okay. Uh, That's a bolt action. Um, And the reason I'm going with that would be if we're long-term everything uh i think we're going to run into less problem with that over the long term Uh, but i did specify the the variant that operates off the ar-15 magazine so i can be finding them
0: right you can pick those up as needed
1: pick those up as needed and if i get in a fixed position i can control a whole lot of field with the bolt action rifle Mm
0: -hmm. Uh,
1: i'm not worried about the rate of fire in that situation i got the 870 to take care of that if, if i'm getting overrun okay uh, you know the optic would need to be a very very stout something like a one to eight um oh gosh what's night force something along those lines
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: now i i have one of those rifles american ranch a six five you and it's got a vortex one to eight on it um i would want a sturdier scope than that the vortex that's great for what i use it for but if i'm in a long-term situation i'd rather have something steadier, sturdier and 6.5 Grendel, while I like it, I would rather have the, the more readily available mags and ammunition.
0: Right. Chambered, chambered for those rounds that you'll find yeah. when you find those mags. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned the CZP 10C. Mm-hmm. Now, by the time this airs, we will have uh, finished the instructor reunion yeah. where I will not be shooting a CZP 10C. <laughs> so, um, And I like the CZP 10C. I like it a lot. Why do you like the CZP 10C? Now
1: I buy from a law enforcement distributor, and so the price of a what I could get a blue label Glock 19, and what I can get the CZ equivalent of that, dollar to dollar. You know, maybe five or ten dollars difference depending on which shop that Mm -hmm. I go to. the CZ comes with a grip that would be akin to if you sent off a Glock grip to have it reduced and reshaped. And so you don't have to spend that money
0: for the CZ. So, uh, do your Glock 19s have uh grips that have been? I have one, reshaped. Glock,
1: I have one Glock 19 that, that came from Tom Gibbons that was uh reshaped by Templar Custom. And i don't know i don't know if they're still in business anymore okay. uh um and i love that glot 19 i can do anything i can do things with it that i can't do with other pistols and everything but it also taught me that uh you know getting the gun that that fits your hand better does have some benefit uh while the gun i carry on a daily basis to work is a factory gen 3 glot 19 mm-hmm. um I found myself that 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 Templar Custom Glock became a clutch gun. I could do things. It's one of two guns, the other being a general Two Seventeen, that I got where I could do things with them that I could not do with other pistols. And when they became clutch guns, it's like, okay, they have to go in the safe because I have to get to this level of ability with a factory gun. Mm-hmm. It can't be just because I've got this special gun because I don't think that's. I don't want to do that in front of students and let them think they have to have that special gun to work with. So the CZ grip out of the box is on par with many of the Glocks that I've seen that have had reductions and reshapings and all that kind of stuff. Uh, The CZ P10C trigger on both of my copies is as good or better than glocks that i've shot that have like apex parts in them mm-hmm. and, and other things so you're getting a grip and a trigger for the same price as what you would have to pay for extra for that to get it on a glock okay um the accuracy of the p10c surpasses the first four gens of glock and it's probably on par with the gen five glocks that i've shot maybe it's still even better than that wow. um the one drawback is, is that iron sight options for the Glock are far superior to what iron sight options are available for the for the CZ. Holsters for a private citizen are a non-factor because you can readily find holsters with the CZ. Duty holsters for the CZ are problematic. Okay. Um, U.S. duty gear is probably the only quality manufacturer duty gear holster out there for the CZs. All right
0: okay well we should get some interesting comments from all the glock lovers
1: oh and i'll throw in a couple of other things too is that the the cz the p10 i think is it's it's not a direct analog to a glock 19 even though that's, that's where a lot of people put it in i think it kind of fits the window between a 19 and a 17 because it does uh, it is a little bit bigger than my 19s but it's not quite as big as the 17 um and you are getting a base-fit 17-round mag in that gun instead of a base-fit 15-round mag.
0: Depends and on which CZ mag. P10 yeah. I think you get. The P10Cs are a 17-round
1: mag. No, no, well, no, the they're, one, fifth, they're 15. The, the one, right. one, you're right. You're right. The one I right. have
0: is 15, but you're you can right. get a base plate on it to get right. you to 17 right. plus you're one. Right. Yeah,
1: it is, a, it is. If you have a flush-fitting one, it's 15. Uh, but the grip is a little bit longer than a glott 19. Uh, they are metal mags. They do eject. Uh, more cleanly than than the glock mags mm-hmm. do um there's just a lot of things i like about the cz
0: okay
1: compared to the glock now i still walk out into the world carrying a glock but uh as i've often said if we're having a loser buys lunch match i'm getting out my pistol batted optic gun but i'm still leaving the the uh range carrying my iron sighted gun for now um that match is also going to be shot with my PTNC instead of a Glock 19.
0: Okay. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of having people shoot different guns. I did that today. I was out at the range with someone and I, you know, they were shooting their Glock yeah. 17 with an optic and then their yeah. other Glock 17 with another PMO on it. And I said, okay, you know, put those away now here. And I took out a Glock 19. Um and gave it to them and with my ammo not their ammo I said okay now shoot this okay and I've done that before with I've lined up you know a VP9 an XDS yes I have an XDS and it runs um, <laughs> a Ruger American pistol which I think is a highly underrated pistol yeah. it's it's um, and then uh, what was the fourth one CZ probably might've been a Glock 19 and I just have them walk down the line and they pick yeah. it up and they each, and they shoot them. I just want them to understand to your point earlier, get yeah. the gun between you and the bad guy and press the trigger without disturbing the sight picture. Mm-hmm. And it's going to go where you need it to go and learn how to do yeah. that quicker, yeah. learn how to do that faster. So.
1: The, the, the one failing point that I see with the CZ right now is if you're going to go with an optic, um, you're either dealing with adapter plates or you're going to have to send the gun off and have it direct milled by an aftermarket, in which void your warranty and everything. And for a private citizen, that's not a big deal, for a duty carry, that is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, if I could get a CZ direct P10C directly from the factory milled for an acro optic, mm-hmm. I would be writing up the policy change right now to submit for approval. Um but uh yeah, that's one thing. Uh we, you know, and we Eric and I talked about the, all that last week on, on on what to carry. I did pick up today a test and evaluation M&P uh duty pistol directly milled for an Acro that I will be doing uh, some testing with.
0: So you're going to mount the Acro that you have onto it or it's already yeah. got the Acro on it? Uh, I'm going to put
1: my Acro on it and uh just do some testing with that and then I'm probably going to get my hands on a 45 Glock, model 45
0: mm-hmm. that's directly
1: milled within the next few weeks to do some similar testing with it okay uh the one reason i like the cz too is with the optic is my natural presentation the optic appears the dot on the optic appears where it should be with the Glock, i have to consciously camp my wrist forward for the optic to to be where i can see it and i don't like having to be in my conscious mind
0: mm-hmm to do that yeah the, the things you you reach a level of automaticity mm-hmm. so let's tell folks the story about when you demonstrated a level of automaticity that you didn't even realize you had drawn the gun until it was between you and the guy and you were telling them not to move
1: <laughs> let's see <laughs> if, let, me,
0: let, let me see if i can do the lead into this you're driving south on highway 15 you never carry a ticket book. You haven't carried a ticket book for 20 years or so. If you pull somebody over, they're either getting a warning or they're going to jail. That's the only two options because you don't have a ticket book to write them a ticket. Mm-hmm. You're in a relatively unmarked vehicle. Yep. And all of a sudden, this on this two-lane road, this guy comes flying past you at a high rate of speed. Now, normally, you would just try to catch up to him, read the tag, make sure that there's no... Uh, warrants or anything out uh, but he was getting away so you hit the lights yeah um,
1: okay
0: from the moment you hit the <laughs> lights take over the story
1: yeah um i don't even know where we keep the ticket books so th- there's that um so for the last 13 years i, don't, I don't haven't carried a ticket book um a lot of times when I see something like that, I'll lift the lights and that's enough of a signal for people. Oh, that's a cop. I probably ought to slow down. Um, in this instance, um, they came by me so fast and were like going off and leaving me that I had to initiate the blue lights and stuff and punch it to catch up with them to read the tag. And, um, I'm behind them, blue lights going calling in the tag and they are still pulling away. And so, like, I really had to get into it to catch up with them. And so I called it in as, you know, I got lights going and they're not stopping. Um, it wasn't really a full chase at that point. Cause I hadn't activated my siren and, but I told everybody what was going on and we got on long straight away. And so finally I, I, I hit my siren trying to get their attention. And as soon as they realized, Oh, that's a cop behind us with lights on. They didn't like slow down and come to a slow stop and pull off the side of the road. They immediately pulled off the side of the road at that high rate of speed. And that was like, wow, that that that's interesting. And I saw them just bouncing down the road. And so I I slowed behind them, like pulled over behind them, and I got out. I called out, you know, which stopped and I hit the ground as quickly as I could because the experience just taught me when your wheels stop, your feet need to be on the ground. And so my wheels stopped, my feet were on the ground. And I started walking up to the car and out of all four windows, I see both hands of each person extend. Now, there's a front seat, there's a driver, obviously, a front seat passenger and two rear seat passengers and out of all four windows, hands extend. They go, wow, these folks have had some training. This isn't the first time uh, they've been stopped by the man. They, they They've been through some serious traffic stop training to know that's what's coming. And then I notice on one of them, what are unmistakably prison tattoos on the hand and wrist. Okay. These boys have had some serious training and I am walking up uh, to the car and I do the whole thing that we you know, taught, put the thumbprint on the trunk and everything. I don't know that that's ever actually worked, but that's what I was taught. Put a thumbprint on the trunk, put a thumbprint on the rear windshield as you're walking up in case something happens and they find your car. The car later, they can identify. I guess he was in contact with it. Yeah, so I'm doing that, and I'm walking up, and it's just as I get to the rear of the car, I see the driver's hands that are sticking out the window. They shoot back to his waistline area, and his shoulders hunch, and from behind, it looked just like an appendix inside the waistband. Draw. I don't remember drawing my pistol. I don't remember a conscious thought of, "Hey, you need your gun." you should probably draw your pistol, whatever. My gun was magically where it needed to be, front sight where it needed to be. And I was giving verbal commands that I was not consciously, you should say X. Like they were coming out and the guy complied. And I back off and I hold them at that point till other deputies get on scene. And we start calling them out of the car one-on-one. As it turns out, that if we were writing a book or writing two books on how to get shot by the police and in inappropriate times to spill your coffee in your lap chapter one would be the same chapter in both books uh he had a one of those stainless steel coffee mugs and he was riding with it sitting on his resting on his thigh and somehow through all that whole off-road maneuver it stayed sitting perfectly on his thigh and as i'm walking up at that point it tips over and dumps scalding hot coffee right into his groin and of course he reacted
0: and of course mm-hmm.
1: i reacted and yeah turns out all the story was legit there were a bunch of painters that were on the way they were late for work and everything and so well i guess the cup of coffee in the groin handles the warning for the uh for the speeding offense today, you guys be careful when you get out of here. And I continued on to the ranch.
0: Well, good. Good. By the way, I want to mention this to my audience, our audience, your audience. I'm just the guest host. It would be, there's a fine line on this episode. Okay. We want, we don't want this to be the most viewed episode for two reasons. One, we don't want Lee to think he's the most popular guest on his own show. And two, we sure don't want Lee to think I'm a better host. But we have to have more views than anything that John Hearn has ever been on. Okay? So keep an eye out on that Weems Guy Facebook page so that Lee can let you know when you got to the sweet spot on views for this episode. Call your friends. Call your neighbors. Uh, I'll offer rounds of ammunition. But we got to get these views to where leak and zing john a little bit but it's not the most viewed episode
1: so we got to get to number four is what you're saying uh
0: what you know the numbers better i don't yeah. track the numbers yeah. i listen to the podcast
1: well there's an episode in which john and eric Gellhouse are both on sig- the first significant incident episode and that's currently at number five
0: so we've got it we got to okay beat that well that well there's one where John's like below number five, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, because I don't, don't want to. I'm yeah. not trying to get ahead of Eric. Right. No, Eric's I like Eric. I like John too. You know that. Yeah. Uh, but um, when you get a chance to tease John, of course. And
1: I, I got to tell you, that's been one of the the funniest thing about this whole sh- accidental show and how it's gone and how the whole messing with Hearn thing has spread and become a thing. And we're like, even like guests that don't know John want to know if their episode's a beating and everything and it's just uh, the 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 response this last week in which you know John was supposed to be on an episode and this stuff happened and he wasn't able to get there even though we'd said in the intro he was going to be on the episode the comments and stuff that people have left and sent in have just been absolutely hilarious and just played into the whole thing and uh John's a good sport and he's a good friend.
0: He is and he's a he's a great guy and he's a great instructor and if you get a chance to take a class from John you should as well. And John paid me the nicest compliment I've ever had as a student. We were at Rangemaster a couple, three years ago, and John had to step in to teach a class because another instructor couldn't make it. Which class it was and which instructor that was doesn't really matter. And John had already done yeoman's work at the Rangemaster TACCON, as he always does. And I'm in this class, along with some other students. And some of the students were a bit of a challenge for John. And on top of that, he was tired. John came up to me after the class somewhere separate and said, hey, I just want to thank you for not being a complete screw up in that class. And that's the nicest compliment I ever received after a class. So thank you, John. I do appreciate that. Lee, tell us about any upcoming um, classes you've got going on.
1: Oh, the, well, we got the Rangemaster reunion this week, but you won't hear about that until this episode, until after that uh, reunion. It went great. Yeah, it was fantastic. Um, The next class that I have upcoming, it would be late January, I think January 20th or somewhere around in there, uh, late January at Top Guns at Terre Haute in Terre Haute, Indiana. I will be the lead instructor for a range master instructor development course. Uh, we currently have one person short of the minimum, uh, registered for that class. So if you could get to Terre Haute in late January, it'd be a great time to come to that class. You will be one of the select few in which I taught your range master IDC. He's talking Um, to you out there. That's right. Um, you'll get to meet there's some there's some interesting people that are signed up for the class that you would get to meet as well um first weekend in march uh at the apache solutions range in yakinville north carolina on saturday we have shotgun manipulations class and on sunday we have a social lever gun class and those are standalone you, you can take either or uh or both mm-hmm. which is our preference. Um, but that's, that's there, those guys that, Yackinville, North Carolina, um, stay in Jonesville, don't stay in Um probably will be the only open enrollment lever gun class on the calendar for 2023. As much as I love the lever gun and advocate for it and everything, the classes just don't sell. And uh, I don't take up, an open enrollment date with it any longer i've put it that it's like a contract class you got to get enough people ahead of time and and contract with mm-hmm. me to teach that class we're going to try it there in yakinville um due to a special request and we'll see if that person comes through and, and gets and gets enough people there um but that's close enough to home that that's not going to cost me time out in hotels and everything if it doesn't make it doesn't make um
0: well, I really enjoy the lever gun class. You know, I've, I've taken it a couple of times and assisted you a few times and it's a lot of fun. So if you have a lever gun and you want to learn what it can and what it can't do right. and how to run it in that situation where it might be the only thing you've got. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you mentioned once there, if you ask some deputy that's in a pistol fight, if he wouldn't like to have a lever gun, he'd say, Oh yeah, I wouldn't mind having a lever gun right now. So where I can reach out and touch somebody before they can reach out and touch me.
1: Yeah. I have a friend that he, he's no longer in law enforcement, but, uh, he was involved in a situation where he had his lock pistol and he had a shotgun and he was pinned down in the woods by a guy that had an AK 47. And the distance was such that the shotgun and the pistol were ineffective, but the AK 47, was still plenty effective Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and eventually my SWAT team had to get called in to go in and 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 do a basically rescue on my buddy and um, when I first rolled out the lever gun build it as like a patrol rifle class using a lever gun I got a very angry hate mail from someone I can't you're teaching this class you're going to give people the impression that you think a lever gun is viable as a patrol rifle well that's exactly the impression that i'm trying to give people and he, he, this guy just just couldn't understand it so i contacted my buddy and laid like, hey, Dave, that day that you were in the woods if i could have slid up beside you and handed you a winchester 94 or a marlin 336 would you have been happy to have it He's like oh yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah i would have been really happy to have it and uh i th- yeah, you said a great way of putting it things they can do and they can't do i think that pretty much every situation domestic united states the lever gun's going to be satisfactory for um, mm-hmm. uh, and in a lot of ways it's going to be better than your typical ar-15 whatever because you don't have the side offset uh, unless you've mounted optics and stuff on it that created mm-hmm. um for an individual now there's drawbacks this is why you wouldn't want to do them for mass issue um right like a fleet gun but um there are lots and lots and lots of reasons to go for I, I don't feel hindered by the capacity issue whatsoever um that that's just not a domestic concern in my opinion
0: um you never know when yeah. the need might arise yeah it, it you have to press it into service. Yeah. Uh, Even and for that's, those of you that have a safe full of yeah. AR platform rifles.
1: Yeah. Now I got my first lever gun as a teenager. Um, I don't think I've ever told the story on this podcast. I, family situation. My father was in the hospital. I was left to take care of uh, the family farm and we had mayors in full. And my father had a first cousin that he was very, very close to um that was coming by to check on me and make sure everything was going okay. And after all that was said and done, he handed me an old uh Glenfield model 30 and said, I'll tell your daddy you're ready for this. And so to me it was a coming of age type thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, in high school I later bought a Marlin Three Thirty Six with my own money, and that's the one that I still have and still use in classes. Um and for the longest time, that 336 was the only center fire rifle I owned. Uh, I did not buy a semi automatic center fire rifle until all the Katrina stuff. I'm like, okay, I mean, I found like a surplus Yugo SKS and a cheap AK 47, and they weren't, I didn't, wasn't satisfied with them. And eventually I got into an AR 15 platform because my agency bought them and I had to get proficient enough with them to teach it to you know the basic patrol officer use if i had to fight in my house or in or around my house right now all things being equal they're both loaded ready to go i'm grabbing the
0: 336
1: mm-hmm. um, i know there was a question in the group about 3030 versus pistol caliber 3030. the pistol caliber ones are very finicky
0: Yeah. And on the feeding side, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, and you've got a lot more experience with lever guns than I will ever have. Um, In the classes that I've been in either attending or or assisting where I've seen the problems is when people try to run the gun faster than I think it can actually be run. They're trying to get to half second splits or get the fastest time in class or something. And you can physically damage your gun trying to run it too fast. You get a little bit of bind up or something. And the next thing you know, you've broken it before you could stop.
1: Yeah. there. You know, with a pump shotgun, we tell you to run the pump like it owes you money. Mm -hmm. Uh, With the lever gun, there's got to be some skill and finesse in running it. And just little things such as the gun being counted slightly one way or the other affect whether or not the round feeds uh and that has been more pronounced in the remington area of remington owned and marlin production rifles than, say my old rifle that was actually made by marlin before mm-hmm. the takeover uh that's been one thing that i've noticed in, in the classes so it's actually changed uh one of our recommended techniques for an emergency load um Depending on your rifle, that and we have the students experiment with that. Uh, I did handle the other day a Ruger produced Marlin 4570 uh, 1895. Just briefly, I picked it up in a gun shop and I was impressed with it. Uh, when the 3030s eventually come out, uh, I will probably be on board and grab one of those.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, I wish they had a. I know at one time there was a pump 3030.
1: Uh, Savage made one, I'm pretty sure.
0: Um, it's just uh, the, the whole straight line action.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It, I think it's just a lot more robust. Yeah. So, speaking of robust and which shotgun for the apocalypse, mm-hmm. I would, if I chose a Mossberg, it would be because if I ever broke off the ejector, I have a better chance of fabricating something and putting it in there than I would with a 870.
1: Yeah. And uh, yeah. And it could be changed with a flathead screwdriver instead of
0: That's uh, Yeah. <laughs> if, I, if, I, if I could make the part, I can yeah. do it. I can, I can undo the screw and put the screw in. That's the one yeah. thing I like about yeah. the Mossberg over the uh, 870. 70, yeah. but I, you know, as you know, I love the eight seventies too. Yeah. And 1301 is a great one, but yeah. Back to if it's the last gun you're going to have, yeah. And the only one you can take with you from here to eternity. Yeah. Or as long as you're on the planet, then having something that's the yeah. uh, least amount of maintenance.
1: If we're standing in a gun store and there is a Beretta 1301 on the shelf, a new manufactured Remington 870P on the shelf, and a Mossberg 590, and I've got to grab one of those three and run out in the parking lot to fight, I'm gonna take the bread of 1301. It, it is the probably the I'm not probably that's a qualifier. It is the best in production fighting shotgun currently available. Now your question was I can have any one that I want and I did say an old 870 right. P. Uh, well, I knew I, I knew why yeah. you said that. <laughs> yeah the, the new stuff, I, I don't want anything new but from Remington. Uh, just too many problems with them um, it pains me to say that if the 1301 was not in that equation and it was a new production 870p and a new production 590 I would grab the 590 and it pains mm-hmm. it pains me to say that
0: I understand
1: uh, it, it really does
0: I'm, right, I'm actually, I'm actually a hurting of. a
1: little bit right here <laughs>
0: I picked up picked up a couple of Remington, uh, old Remington. Yeah. I, I know yeah. they're old because the condition the stocks yeah. were in when I got them. Yeah. Uh, police Magnum trade ins, and yeah. I like those. Yes, yeah. wow. um,
1: I grew up shooting a Winchester Model 12, and 20 gauge that my grandfather had, and I have an affinity for for that design. Uh, I've got one in 12 gauge now that was a World War II. Uh, aerial gunner trainer Mm -hmm. Um, and while I love that the feel of that gun in the action I still am an 870 guy that's where I did all of my formative years and formative shotgun training was on the 870 that's what feels right Yeah, that's just what feels right to me I can make the other stuff work and that's one of the differences in teaching shotgun compared to teaching pistol okay you got a bunch of guys on the line and you got a couple of 320s a couple of glocks an mmp you know some oddball something else in there they all load by putting the magazine in and running the slide they all unload by taking the magazine out and running the slide that is Mm -hmm. not not the case with with shotguns with the remington you do this with the malsberg you do that with a winchester you do anything else because the you know the slide lock buttons or, or action lock buttons are all in different places on each one of them or uh, different sequences for taking rounds out of the magazine tube and everything and it's mm-hmm. just so if you're going to teach shotgun unless you're going to specify a specific model you got to know all of them
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah i don't know all of them and occasionally we get some crazy oddball gun that comes to the class and we have to figure it out on the fly
0: uh, yeah i ran into that sunday night i had uh I had a Panzer semi-auto. I don't even know what the model number was. Yeah. It ran fine. Um, had a uh, Mossberg 930, no problems. Had a Benelli bird gun. Had a long barrel. <laughs> kind of long length of pull. Mm-hmm. And you can only get... Uh, you can only take two in the tube and then one end because you still had the plug in it, so we yeah. moved them over to the thirteen oh one, which is sort of a familiar platform, yeah, but you know the nine the, the nine that nine thirty in any event, unlike the beretta you know you when you run the bolt it'll put a shell in there, whether you put it on the lift or not, yeah so you do know, yeah. and that's so you know to your point yeah there's a slightly different operating system for each one of them yep. let me. Uh, no, I won't ask you this next question. Never mind, because I'm not going to set up a. I'm not going to, not going to set up too many problems for you on the internet. Uh, all right. All right. Anything you wanted to chime in about? Um,
1: no. I, I all right. Then
0: while you're contemplating that, I'll uh, throw one more at you. All right. I was listening to you and Justin dialed
1: mm-hmm.
0: talk about uh, training and. You know, Justin talked about adapting to the individual, making that individual better. And I was, of course, he did a lot of training in the Marine Corps. Um, you know, you train deputies and you know, the, the thought crossed my mind, you know, I got a line of Marines up there. If I got a couple of them that can't get to where I wanted to get to, I can say, hey, you Johnson fall out, you're heading to the typing pool, you Smith, get in here, you know, you, you, you can change them out. You can, as much as you hate to do it, but you you could not let a deputy, well, a deputy could not fall. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it's a potential. and But with a civilian, you got to make them as good as they can be. They can't have somebody else step in for them into that role right. that they're going to, that you need that, they may need themselves for that one day. Yeah. And to me, that's, That's one of the things that an instructor has to think about is, okay, I get, I may not be able to get this person to where this other person is, but I need to get them better. Greg Elifritz wrote a great, uh, um, article about he's sitting in a gun store and nobody else knows he likes to go there because nobody knows him and there's some lady sitting there and she's got a brand new gun and a box and a box of ammo Mm -hmm. and she's looking all nervous as get out she probably didn't fit the normal demographics that you'd look for that you'd see in a gun store and greg's He's waiting for a lane to open up. He strikes up a conversation. She's pretty sure her ex or her whatever is coming back that night to break in and she's got to protect herself. And he says, now there's some pressure. Yeah. I said, I've got, I've got one hour and 50 rounds to get this woman where she could defend herself against something that night. How do, how do we deal with that? So
1: Um, in my previous cop administrator days, I did, Take away a gun from a deputy, let you were no longer allowed to carry a firearm, and that changed a lot of things, job status, and everything that went. He did. There was a non-gun toting job that he was able to to perform. Um, As far as private business goes, I have fired one student. No, I I will no longer work with you. In this now that doesn't keep them from being able to carry a firearm it doesn't keep mm-hmm. them from being able to go to someone else right name but it has been a you you and i or you and me i guess that'd be an object and uh, that sense it'd be a nominative pronoun you and i know I are, exactly are, are doing, when you fired yeah, that
0: student too yeah
1: you and i are no longer in a business relationship with each other and right. um i will no longer be on the line with you and trying to teach you you, you I wish you success, everything else, but we're done. Mm -hmm. Um, I've only had to do that formally. Well, actually, I've done it with more than one student. Uh, I did it once with a student over um, some bizarre behavior issues, and then I did it with another student that uh, I invited them not to come back to, to some Nothing that happened in class, but the student had been engaged in stuff prior that. I had, mm-hmm. nothing, I had nothing to do with whatsoever. Right. Like, Look, I don't want you associated with my business. So I've done it more than once. But one with a student that I've actually had on the line teaching them stuff is like, yeah, mm-hmm. we're, not, we're not doing this anymore.
0: So now I'm going to ask you, and this will be my closing question for the night. All right. I'm, I'm going to ask you to make a prediction. Okay. Uh, you're going to be um, teaching some stuff this weekend, or presenting some material this weekend at the Range Master Instructor Reunion. What, without giving something away, what's going to be the biggest surprise for people, or what's the, what's the thing that you're you, what's what's the message you're going to try and convey that's going to be the biggest? Uh, aha moment or surprise for them and
1: we'll, the we'll see how that matches be, up <laughs> the biggest surprise will be that loud noise that just took place at to the other end of the house i wonder what that is
0: um uh, do you need to pick up that old <laughs> 870 and go check out that bump in the night
1: uh, no no the, the dog's not excited so i guess it's okay okay um i don't mind giving it away and this will be like one of the other takeaways uh that I got. Should, Recall does not matter recoil is not a thing especially in nine millimeter pistols uh, and we program our students subconsciously that recoil is a booger bear or maybe in a scottish descent the bogeyman um that That recall is such an issue, and that students have to fight it that we subconsciously train them to anticipate the recall and compensate for that, and that is a leading contributor to missed shots. It is not jerking the trigger
0: mm-hmm.
1: at all uh There's an exercise that the students will do on uh Sunday in the reunion, and it's part of the trigger management class, and I always ask the recall question when they get done. With, okay. with that particular drill and uh it's kind of funny to see the responses and their realizations on their face and as that is an instructor development course um because everybody attending the reunion is a, is a certified instructor
0: mm-hmm.
1: i think that's going to be a way to import some stuff that maybe um maybe get some people to, to look at what they're teaching and how they're presenting stuff. Um, because my classroom block on Saturday, one of the things will be is a slide is, what is the definition of learning? And that the definition that we're going to use, that we're going to assign to learning is a persisting change in knowledge, skills, or attitude. That's been a persisting change in my knowledge, skill, or attitude is that recall just doesn't matter.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah. If you were trying to chase Grandmaster or Master, split times matter. Right. On the parking lot defending your life, there's not much difference between a 0.35 and a 0.25. Mm-hmm. Or a 0.45 or, or whatever. There's not a whole lot of difference in that. What does matter is if you miss the shot, that takes a lot of time. Because then that doubles your split time.
0: You can't miss fast enough.
1: Can't miss fast enough.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, Lee, thanks. You've been a great (laughs) guest tonight. We really appreciate you. Speaking for Lee and myself, we really appreciate you being on the show tonight. Folks, we want to thank you for joining us. We know that your most valuable asset is time, and we appreciate that you chose to spend it with us. Good night.